HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe white-tailed deer share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter. Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. A little housekeeping. Anybody who's listening to this podcast, I'd appreciate if you go in and give it a review. Uh, that keeps me uh, motivated and keeps uh, keep us keeps us up on the the food chain. Uh, this podcast has been very helpful, and uh, I'm so appreciative of all the guests we've had on. I've had a good opportunity to meet a lot of people on this, is and also a good opportunity for everyone on this podcast to learn. So it's it's been really kind of a, a sweet thing, and I'm really happy to be doing this. I've got a repeat guest on. Al, are you are you there? I'm here, buddy. I'm here. Thanks for having me back. All right. Let's see. Hopefully everybody remembers you. We, we had a long discussion on soil health. So why don't you uh, just quickly introduce yourself just in case people don't know who you are. We'll talk a little bit about your business and then we'll get into the topic. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, John. Yeah, uh, Albert Tomechko. I am uh, the co-founder and uh, co-owner of uh, Vitalize Seed Company. Um, and uh, yeah, I was on your podcast just a few weeks ago and I'm happy to be back. Good, good. So this is part two, and we wanted to get a little more in depth. We want to talk about, you know, many different topics related to food plots, specifically seed selection choices, you know, your specific strategy, you know, how you built your blends and why, and give people maybe some options, some things to consider when they're creating, you know, maybe blends on their landscape and, and considering, you know, the options that you have available, you know, from Vitalized Seed. I think that's great that we're sharing, you know, the, this this kind of one-two punch option, and I think it would be very beneficial to people to think maybe more in depthly about seed varieties and and being a little bit different too, thinking outside the box. So um, I wanted to kind of start there. I want to talk about some basics, and I want to talk about looking at the soil. We talked a little bit about that last go around, and one of the things I really focus in on is, you know, what is my soil like? And we talked about a soil test and kind of how to smell and feel and we gave you some measurement techniques i talked about ec meters and soil testing and slack testing and all sorts of different things but this next piece of it is thinking more about what your soil does or doesn't provide and some in some capacity figuring out what's going to do well in that soil and a lot of times we're using cover crops they go really really well you know they they do good on the landscape I gave my example of just kind of throwing seed out in the air. But Al, I want to get your take on, on maybe this piece of it is looking at your soil type. And, and you talked about CEC and talked about a bunch of different complicated topics. But what you look at and, and why you select certain seed types that correspond with soil. So I kind of want to get your take on that. Yeah. So when you're looking at in, in general, you know, in my experiences with, with planting highly diverse blends, right? Whether it's, it's, it's the current ones that I'm offering or something that I've made on my own over the last decade or so. Um, what you benefit from there is that you're, you, you reduce your margin for error, right? So what I've found a lot of times is like, you know, maybe if in a, I'll just, let's use a fall blend for, for talking purposes. So maybe in a fall blend, you have, you have grains and you have brassicas and you have clovers and you maybe you have some hairy vetch and things like that. Um, and what you sometimes might notice is, you know, on, on one soil, uh, the grains tend to do a little bit 
better, right? They, you'll, you'll notice they're just a little bit greener, right? Just those observational things we talked about last time, John. Like you, maybe they're a little bit greener. Maybe maybe they're, they look a little bit more lush. And, um, and maybe on the field that's 100 yards away, very similar soil types, you, you'll see that uh, maybe the clovers and the brassicas have a little bit more vibrant green, right? And it can just be very small differences. Um, I know when, when something you brought up last time was the focus on uh, – trace minerals right or, or trace elements or micronutrients in the soil profile and you know it could be even things that we're not even testing for on a soil test but it's making that slight difference um, in that soil and i've also noticed that with these blends and we've had a lot of feedback on this as well because of all the synergistic relationships that are happening from a fungal species and all of this stuff that's below ground um, the browsability and attractiveness, people go, man, I, the deer never eat my brassicas when I planted them in a monoculture, right? And then they plant them in these blends. They go, man, the, the, the deer just, they loved them. And I've never seen that happen. I've never seen brassicas ate before it was, you know, February and we had a foot of snow on the ground. And, and I think sometimes that occurs because you're just, you're putting out enough diversity to kind of cover all your bases. And the things that are going to succeed, everything's going to grow a little bit. But the things that are going to dominate the growth are going to be based on what's you know currently available in that soil profile, especially in year one. You know, as we read the soil tests and as we work a system and and as we, you know, amend the soil to make sure that our calcium and our magnesium and our micros and things are are in the in a good place, right? We have that good foundation. And then we really can start to optimize biology so everything flourishes. But in the very first beginning, I mean, I think that's what really the whole benefit of, of a lot of times these diverse blends are, you know, you kind of mitigate that risk. You know, in some of the areas of Michigan and, and New York and, uh, you know, states states throughout the U.S., you're dealing with sandy soils. And one of the strategies, and, and this would be really for all soil types, but soil soils that are dominated by sand or dominated by clay, one of the goals is to build as much root matter as possible for either expansion, right, porosity, or alternatively to create organic material. In both cases, decomposing material over time kind of builds these peds or foundations, and that becomes kind of the, I guess we'll say the food for our microbes, and we've talked about that previously. So having very large root matter, you know, that's decomposing in large quantities. And of course, once it hits kind of the, the soil profile and it starts to degrade, it, it becomes available. Now it'll take time, you know, to become available, but we're thinking about root profiles as much as we're thinking about the stem or the leaf, right, that are digestible. The other piece of this is thinking about plants is how much of the fibrous elements of that, you know, leaf stem are digestible. And the quality of that fiber and how it facilitates rumen health and, you know, things like crude fiber, total fiber, thinking more about neutri- neutral uh, detergent fiber, acid detergent fiber, you know, the qualities of those fibers and the balancing of those, you know, to kind of promote, you know, in this case, digestibility and thinking more specifically about how the animal breaks down, you know, those particular plants, you know, and the benefits per se. And we talked a little bit about, you know, broad leaves and things of that nature and, and how they're digestible or not. You can do some research on this kind of stuff, but there's attributes of these plants that, that create attraction. So I guess I'll ask a maybe more specific question for you, Al. Uh, sandy soils, and we're plagued by sandy soils. How do you attack those? Um, I, I want to know, you know, maybe what, what a good tactic would be for somebody just from a plant selection standpoint. Yeah, well, I think, so sandy soils are one we, we, see a lot of you know and my first recommendation is typically you pull a soil sample on sandy soils and you start there you have okay you're low cec so we know it's sandy the next thing i look at is my base saturation percentages and i typically see that magnesium is really low um you know relative to that cec so then i'm going to say okay we're probably going to want to align this and people go whoa 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 you know i thought that you guys wanted to reduce inputs over time yeah i do i want to reduce inputs but we have to build a foundation you know i'm not somebody who thinks that you never have to ever put a you know any type of input down so i'd like to always clarify this we need to build this chemical structure foundation of the soil profile and that's where understanding base saturations comes in so my first step there is always to look at, you know, my pH, my CEC. So we've determined 
it is a sandy soil. And then, of course, I'm going to say, all right, I want to use, in that case, dolmitic limestone to increase that magnesium, which is going to give you a little bit of a tighter soil structure, um, which is good for sandy soils, right? We want the inverse of that on heavy clay soils. Um, from there, I think it's very critical to follow the six soil health principles, right? So diversity, reducing tillage, um, you know, selecting plant species and making sure that your blends are going to be, you know, if, if you're in Michigan or, or New York, for example, you want blends that are going to be as winter hardy as possible. You know, I mean, you want to optimize photosynthetic capture, right? Or sunlight capture. That's something that I really try to highlight to people because if these are photosynthesizing, good things are happening, right? And we're feeding those microbes. When photosynthesis stops, you know, or, or the plants all die off because they're not winter hardy, we're not optimizing our microbial activity in the soil profile. The next thing is, uh, it, it, this kind of goes without saying, but I still like to mention it is, you know, one of the so- six soil health principles is um, reducing tillage. Why is that so critical in, in sandy soils? Well, because what happens is when we, when we have highly diverse mixes that are all working together synergistically and they're doing all of these great things from a root mass structure and they're, they're photosynthesizing and the roots are exudating uh, carbonic acids and sugars and it's it's creating this fungal dominated network over time what we have happen is there's actually what's called glomalin or people might have heard ray archuleta call it biotic glues um and what that is is it's literally a structure that's excreted from fungal networks in the soil that helps for soil aggregation so now we have this we started with talking about magnesium from a chemical structure um, that's going to help with aggregation, right? From like, think of that as like the chemical side of the building blocks. Now we have this biological aggregation happening because of our fungal networks that are being established within the soil profile. Well, how is that happening? Well, it's happening through diversity in your seed blends, um, making sure that you're picking things are, that are, again, winter hardy, that are going to, you know, in the spring, are they going to photosynthesize quickly? Are they going to grow quickly? Are they going to feed soil mic- microbial life? Or, you know, what are we getting out of these plants that we're picking? But what you don't want to do is go in there and till. A lot of times your microbiology, your, your bacteria, if you will, in their soil profile, I, I forget who it was, if it was Dr. Christine Jones, or uh, they, they explained it with, you know, you can till and a lot of your bacteria, although oxidation does occur, they kind of ride the wave. What can't ride the wave, John, is, is that fungal network. And that is, I mean, it's critical in all soils, right? It helps from breaking down higher lignin-filled crops. We can cycle nutrients faster as systems lend themselves to more fungal-dominated over time. There's, there's a whole trickle impact of that. Um, but for sake of time in this discussion, um, it really helps from a soil structure perspective, which is so hypercritical to those sandy soils because we're, we have such a high propensity to leach nutrients to not be able to really absorb water and have water infiltration be there. So as we can do those things and have better root channels and better chemical structure and better biological structure of the soil through those channels, that's really going to help us um, in the long run. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I'm going to be controversial. You know, a lot of times I, I like starting off with the sandy soil routines of getting in annual plants and doing the, the no-till method. You know, sandy soils are, you know, they've got a large percentage of oxygen as compared to, you know, clay soils. So tilling, vertical tillage or any type of tillage whatsoever, you know, aerating the soil is a bad thing, right? We're trying to work uh, towards building, you know, I guess, a root matter. And so having plants, perennial options are great. I'm trying to think of biomass. So, you know, annuals have a tendency to pr- provide more biomass. In some cases, you can irrigate areas. I've worked with clients where we've irrigated their their soils. You know that's a, that's a great option. Uh, there's alternatives where you can you can do some irrigation uh, with just rainwater, right? So it's thinking about you know how to elevate water in the landscape and ponds, and then using those as distribution channels into assuming you can create ponds in those areas, or you can use that as a water source to your, your food plots. Um, alternatively, thinking about you know the types, you know, I ultimately I start thinking of chicory deep plant rooted plant i'm thinking alfalfa you know depending you know on the location type of you said earlier cec you know very sandy soil is very hard to grow anything ryegrass something that people downgrade big time would be a consideration 
Um, and, and, and again, that's, that's a controversial topic that anybody listens to, you know, people on different forums. And I, I plant ryegrass in, in a lot of areas, you know, regardless of what people think it's available and it's digestible, it's not highly preferred, but it's utilized. So those are things that just kind of come off my mind. I don't, I don't have any notes on this topic. Uh, John, for, can I add one thing as go, well that I ahead. would recommend? Yeah. So one other thing too, again, especially as somebody starting, so, you know, let's assume low organic matter and, and you know, this is their first time food plant and they, they found this mix that they want to use in the sandy soil. And, um, you know, one of the things I like to tell guys is, uh, don't be afraid to fully apply nutrients you know, to these sandy soils, right? Because it's not the same where, you know, like let's say it's it's real low in potassium, which is pretty typical, right? You're just, even if your saturation is a decent percentage, it's, it's relative to so such a low CEC that you're not going to hold much potassium in that particular soil. So I've learned this from, I, I think I might've mentioned last time we spoke, but a mentor of mine who is a big time row crop ag farmer and they're growing in one, in, I mean, literally it's like Daytona beach sand mm-hmm. and they're growing great corn in South Georgia in these conditions. And I'm like, how are you doing it? You know, well, of course they have infer wet planting, you know, us as a lot of times food potters don't have that option, but then he's like, man, we're, we're trickle feeding, you know, these crops throughout the growing season. Now they have it down to a science for their peanuts or their, their corn or what have you, but as food potters, we can just do it observationally. You know, you go out there and you go, oh man, these, these plants look like they're struggling a little bit. I pulled my soil test. I already know that I'm likely knowing these go ahead and add a, a micronutrient foliar, you know, and not every micronutrient is going to be great as a foliar, but for what we're trying to achieve here and to get that biomass, you likely are going to see a positive response. And maybe that's the way you get that root mass and above ground biomass created in the first year or two. And then as you start to cycle things, maybe you can kind of wean off some of those things, um, you know, but, but trying to throw a ton of fertilizer down on a really sandy soil can often be a waste of money. You know, another option is um, if you do want to go the kind of traditional uh, fertilizer route, no problem because we're trying to get that biomass created right in the first first run of things. Um, what about breaking it up? What about you putting 25% down at planting, let's just say, and then 25% down two weeks later and then, you know, and just breaking it up so you're kind of trickle applying so you're not losing things to you know, you get a, a big rain after you plant it in a sandy soil and all of a sudden your nitrogen potassium are in the Ohio River, you know. So I think those are some other options. Um, another thing that I think is cool and a lot of people are coming out with varying things and can be helpful in sandy soils is, you know, there's a lot of fungal inoculants and things out there now that you can put right on seed treatments. And um, I don't have a ton of experience with those on food pots. I've done quite a bit of them with, uh, with garden crops, which have been really cool doing root dips and stuff. And you see how quickly that helps the root structure. Um, and, you know, guys are putting those on on seeds and, and planting them that way, which is also obviously beneficial specifically in a sandy soil to help with that biological structure we talked about. So I just wanted to add a couple of things that I forgot to mention at the beginning. No, that's great. And if you want to learn more about, I guess, foliar sprays or inoculation, uh, there's a guy and I follow him. I've been following for a few years. He's an Amish character. His name is John Kempf. If you've ever heard of John Kemp, he's a regen ag guy. He's uh, pretty tied in the community. He's got a company called AEA. He's got a lot of these foliar and inoculates. Um, they're they're quite expensive, but they're highly productive. And uh, I've had a chance to use some of those on client properties of my own. Um, so I'd recommend looking up some of his stuff. Uh, there's other podcasts out there where they talk more specifically about regenerative agriculture. Um, that's that's more palatable maybe to those trying to take this next level. The other piece of this is, you know, thinking variety is key. And I was talking earlier about biomass, but, you know, I'm trying not to have the ground bare at all in those sandy situations. You know, the same thing would apply, you know, to, to most soil types, you know, preferring to have something growing or living all the time. And that's that's almost impractical if you're killing a crop or, you know, spraying herbicide for that matter. Roller crimping is an example. So, you know, Having a perennial, obviously we talked about that in concert with an annual, right? Splitting the baby on one side versus the other side or however you arrange. I was working on an arrangement last night of food pots for a client. And, uh, you know, I was putting the staple food source kind of near the box blind that was very consistent. And then the annuals, you know, on either side of that. And this was kind of a boomerang shape. Um, but thinking more about layout and then thinking about the sunlight availability, 
you know, your soil is going to vary over that particular profile. So thinking more about that uh, on the landscape, that's where I use my EC meters and I stick them in the ground. I'm taking measurements, right? I'm, I'm doing some on-site analysis, so to speak, you know, that's, it's a little more, I guess, uh, calibrated. And uh, all right. So, you know, I, I was throwing out some seed types and, you know, varieties, etc. Let's get into your one-two punch. Cause I really wanted to kind of talk about your seed mix and blends and, you know, how you develop them and, and, you know, what are the seed varieties involved? And, you know, we, we can't get in specifics of, you know, percentages and numbers, but, you know, what did you select and why? And, and, and kind of explain that, because it's kind of a broad spectrum, I think. So I kind of want to hear your, your opinion. Yeah, no, thanks for, for the opportunity to share a little bit on that. I mean, so I guess I should start real, real brief, you know, backstory as I was food plotting and doing a lot of things in traditional ways. And, uh, you know, over, over time, John, I was, was, uh, expanding more food and, and adding more food. And we, we were fortunate to add more property and, um, I got permission on other properties, right. And, and kind of going through, <clears throat> through that transition of managing more and more properties. And of course, loving planting food plots. And I found out right away that, Holy cow, if I'm going to keep doing it this way, I'm going to have, uh, I don't know if, uh, at the time, my girlfriend, which ended up being my wife now, and um, you know, is, is going to stay with me because I'm spending every money, all the money I have on, on food plots. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and you know, I, I specifically remember one year I was doing like five or six acres that spring, and uh, the bill was going to be over two thousand um, dollars in just uh, potassium and phosphorus. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's got to be another way. So I started making my own mixes and. Um, was really focused heavily in the fall. You know, I was up to 16 different varieties, which is essentially what we call our carbon load. Um, but then I really started to get more and more interested in, okay, well, on these, you know, my larger fields, especially, um, what can I do to further optimize, you know, what I call, you know, nutrient cycling. I reference that a lot with, but basically as my fall crops breaking down, um, the next spring, you know, it's dying the rye and the triticale and such. Um, what what's going to be the best things I can plant into that that's going to help that to further break down, further feed deer, further feed pollinators, add cover, right? Feed the, the soil um, biology, uh, but also keep the the nutrients from leaching out. And I tried a bunch of different things on my own before ever starting the company. And then obviously as we started the company, we've just uh, tweaked things over the last year. So, so this year I'll just run through what we have in our, in our, what we call our nitro boost, which is our spring planting. Um, we have spring barley, we have forage peas, we have a ag soybean, we have Eagle forage soybeans, um, obviously for, for deer browsability. We have cow peas, we have sun hemp and buckwheat. Um, we added lab lab, uh, American joint vetch, sunflowers, uh, hybrid sorghum, crimson clover, and then a forage rape. Um, so as you can see, or as you can hear, I guess, uh, in that it, there's a lot of legumes, and that's intentional uh, because we kind of have a play uh, for, for people who, I'm sure, John, you caught on to it, but for people who are listening, you know, as we spoke in the last podcast, carbon-nitrogen ratios. Um, that's kind of a play on words for us with nitro uh, boost and carbon load. We're kind of having a play on words of that focus of carbon to nitrogen. Um, obviously, nitro boost being heavily focused in, in N um, to help break down that previous carbon load from the fall. Um <clears throat> So the nitro boost, though, people are, well, if it's, you want nitrogen, right? You have all these legumes. They're going to fix nitrogen, nitrogen, excuse me. They're going to be lower carbon to nitrogen crops. Why, why didn't you come up, why didn't you just plant, you know, monoculture soybeans? Well, the reason is, is because of what we just talked about. You, you mentioned having the ground covered. Well, if I just planted soybeans and then ran the drill through there in the fall with, rye and, and oats and my, my turnips and my radishes and such, um, that soybean straw or thatch, if you will, would break down far too rapidly. And I would have bare ground and then I'd have little rows, you know, from the drill at seven and a half inches of new crop, but there would be no, no thatch cover. So you have to have this balance, right? That's why we have sorghum in there. We have spring barley, right? So there's this, there's this balance. We also have sun hemp, which is a legume, but it tends to actually have a higher carbon and nitrogen ratio, same with sunflowers. So I, I share that because there, there is a, a method to the madness. Another thing is when you terminate 
be it a roller crimper, be it herbicide, be it mowing, your fall carbon load, all of that is starting to break down. Now you've got your nitro boost growing up as that carbon load thatch is slowly breaking down, right? Slow release fertilizer. But you have all these legumes that are growing and they don't need an exorbitant amount of nitrogen. But all that sorghum, or excuse me, all that rye grain and, and turnips and all these other carbon, heavier carbon-based products used a ton of the nitrogen that was in your soil profile to grow, right? Those plants worked their tails off. And now they're breaking down the, the next spring as the nitro boost is growing. And it's like, well, wouldn't it be a shame for that nitrogen to just go away, right? Nitrogen is going to go through the cycle. We want to capture that. Well, that's why you have your sunflowers and you have your uh, hybrid sorghums and you have your forage rape and you have your spring barley, right? I use nitrogen just because I think it's the easiest to talk about, but I call it, I, I like to often refer to it as keeping nitrogen in the cycle, right? So now we're basically recycling that through a variety of methods as we're pulling more nitrogen out of the, the air, we have sunflower deep tap roots, of course, forage rape, good tap roots. Your hybrid sorghum, excuse me, has great roots. You have your buckwheat that is known to help solubility of phosphorus, etc. So you have all of these plants working in synergy that are, of course, going to help to solubilize other nutrients within the profile, right? Um, and then going right into your, your fall mix that as these break down and because there are a lot of legumes that are going to break down faster and they fix nitrogen from atmospheric nitrogen all summer long for us, you're going to have a ton of N, P, and K ready to rock and roll for your fall crop, which is quite important for a lot of a lot of guys who like to chase those, those white-tailed deer uh, that we like to talk about, right? Because that's the that's kind of the quote-unquote money crop for, for hunters is that fall crop. And uh, we're using this this mix to help keep nitrogen in the cycle, fix a whole bunch of nitrogen, and solubilize other nutrients to help reduce your, your need for um, synthetic inputs in that fall or quote-unquote money crop for us hunters. Does El, that make sense? It does. El, the nitro boost, the spring load, I'll just call it nitro boost. Yeah. Um, that particular maturity period based upon the volume of plants, which is a consideration by your next sequencing, because we're talking about sequencings or cycles. What is the typical, based upon the volume, what, what is your typical, you know, based on your plant allocation, your peak, yeah. you know, what would be your maturity period for that particular crop? So what they, they know what their cycling is. On another yeah. podcast, I talked about double cropping, which is another term, but it's a term I use for, you know, you've got to cycle this spring crop twice or summer crop twice essentially in order to make it to that fall period so you can plant timely what is what is the typical maturity yeah, period 99 of the, the mix is going to be mature at around 80 days a couple things as, as a slight slightly before that but right around 80 days the one percent of the mix that isn't would be the sunflowers sunflowers just kind of inherently are longer growers. They're, they're probably closer 100 to 90 days, days yeah, 100 to a hundred days. But again, you'll have sunflowers produced, you know, if the deer don't eat you out of house and home, you'll, you'll have sunflowers. Um, and I always tell people we're not looking to run a combine through there to harvest sunflowers. So um, you're going to get plenty of good root mass growth and growth and above um, above ground growth from those sunflowers in that 80 day window. So for me, I like to plant, you know, you can let it grow further, longer, of course. But I mean, that that's really um, when things are going to start to slow down is right after that that eighty ish day window. Have you talked? I guess maybe just thinking about production. Have you taken measurements? Just dry mass measurements, um, just based upon you know the the crop that we're just talking about to kind of get the tonnage per acre, roughly. Just to, just just on your soils, have you done any measurements like that? I did. I did. And uh, last year I took a couple um, tissue analysis actually of our, of our nitro boost. And, you know, we were really excited about the results because we kind of took them, well, not kind of, we took them at random um, in two different fields. And what we were excited about is that neither one of these fields had had fertilizer uh, ever, you know, at least in, in the 15 years that I've owned the farm. Um, and, they averaged uh, pounds per acre, in a, and this is just above ground biomass that was assimilated, 
was uh, 49 uh, pounds of nitrogen, uh, 20 pounds of phosphorus, and 80 pounds of potassium. And then, of course, there's a bunch of micros and calcium, magnesium, et cetera. Uh, but that was just in a three-by-three three square. So we followed Ward Labs cover crop analysis and then sent that in for, uh, you know, they dry it out and, and then send you back the results. But we did uh, two, two fields that way, and both of those results were, like, within a pound of each other. Um, and what we have told people is, like, that was just the above-ground biomass. And like you mentioned, John, it's like, gosh, right now I want to know what, what was the root structure like? You know, what, what was that like under, under our feet? What about the, the microbial biomass? You know, as, as though that, that alone is, is super interesting to me. And then, you know, from a nitrogen perspective, that doesn't take into account any of the, the nitrogen that's affixed to the roots. You know, this is just nitrogen that was in the plant that, of course, is getting terminated through roller crimping or, or herbicide or, or mowing, depending on the grower, but it's getting put right back into the soil. Um, so we were really, we thought that was a really cool test and I plan to do quite a bit more of that this year. Yeah. I think it's important to think about, you know, the plant classifications, the variety that you're talking about, uh, you're talking about, you know, nutrient uptake and then what's available in the plants, the production biomass, you know, I'm, I'm putting my spring mix together right now. Um, just so everyone knows, you know, probably want to know what I plant. I'm going to do, uh, cow peas. And let's see, oats and lab lab. I'll do a white mustard and I will do a sunflower. That'll be my combination. And that's going to be about, oh, I'll say oh, probably a 65 to 75 day crop when I'll terminate it. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking about the cycling of that and I'm getting back into my annual. So every five years, I cycle. So I aerate the soil. I till the soil. I'm bad. And I recycle. And that's when I apply uh, natural amendments. So these are, you know, less soluble amendments. And so everyone has their own process. The thing I'm most interested in is you really figured out something that has taken me a long time to figure out is that legume component and having that as a staple in those spring summer crops. I did not figure that out for a long, long time. And even having perennials, not annuals in those mixes um, or biannuals, what have you, if you're going to plant red clover as an example. And thinking yeah. more in depthly about these as options and, again, maintaining that substance for the deer. Contextually, I think it provides a benefit. And, again, minimizing that bare soil time and what in any capacity. And like you talked about, the breakdown, you know, reducing the – thatch at a rate that complements the plant growth that's coming up next sequentially like there's quite a bit to think about here and you know it's it's just this is not a simple-minded kind of conversation i'm interested in talking about your carbon load next you've kind of alluded to what's in there but i want you to explain what's in there and uh the benefit to deer yeah and i mean you honestly hit on one of my biggest pet peeves is, and, and I think one of the biggest detriments to, you know, you started the conversation off with sandy soils. And I think one of the biggest detriments to why people give up on the no-till process is understanding. Um, and this is not no blame to the grower, but just it's, it's us as it is an industry. Maybe we've, we've gotten to this point where we'll throw out really large amounts of things because it greens up quickly. Um, for example, you know, rye grain, right? With, with no understanding of how nutrients cycle thereafter. So that what happens is somebody says, well, I just plant 200 pounds of rye every, you know, every fall. And then after like five years, they go, man, I just had this mat of rye. I didn't know what to do with it. Right. It's like, (laughs) well, of course, you know, and I can't tell you, John, how many times I've seen that. And, And to the point where sometimes people I've had the phone call where somebody's nervous about, Oh, I noticed that you have uh, you know, you call it carbon load. I, I don't, you know, really don't want to till too much, but uh, every time I've planted something like this, I'm like, okay, let's stop right there. What ratios are being used? You know, what, what have you been planting that, that's causing this, this concern? Right. And a, a common example I use for people is like, there's a reason most farms, not all, but most farmers don't go corn on corn on corn on corn on corn, right? There's a, there's a reason for that because eventually they would just have so many corn stalks they wouldn't have anything to do. Or if they do do that, they have to use 
you know, pretty deep tillage and, and things like that to kind of reset that and help to break down sometimes fall uh, nitrogen applications, um, things of that nature. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to simplify these things and give you all of the things that are attractive to deer, but still optimizing that nutrient cycling so that you're not just, I mean, building up thatch is good. We want thatch to be covering the soil, but we also want that thatch to be breaking down to feed the next crop as we're still adding a new, a new fresh layer of thatch. Um, so in our fall crop, uh, we have triticale, wheat, uh, we have uh, winter peas, winter rye, uh, oats. Uh, we do have a little bit of buckwheat in there. Not a lot because buckwheat's not overly um, – uh, it's, it's very frost sensitive. Sorry, just my brain uh, locked up there for a second. It's, <laughs> it's really sensitive to frost. And, uh, but the, the reason, honestly, I put buckwheat in there <clears throat> is more so just for my love of other things other than just deer and, and uh, one, it, it grows quickly and it kind of can get browsed first while it gives your other plants uh, yep. an opportunity. The other thing is any type of little flower that it can produce is really good for pollinators late in the year. And I don't know anything really about that, but I talked to this person who was really big in honeybees and like, Oh yeah, fall planted buckwheat's actually really great because they're starting to lose a lot of the things that uh, they need and uh, for, for pollinator sources. And that can really help pollinators. So I'm like, you know what? It's a great crop. Let's throw it in there too. And that that's kind of a neat thing. Um, hairy vetch, uh, hairy vetch. I just love for mostly for the, next year i think it does well um crimson clover medium red clover uh, radish uh, forage turnips uh winfred forage brassicas which of course is not much of a bulb producer but it's more so um, just a forage uh, brassica a uh, fixation balanza uh, clover uh, we also use purple top turnips uh bark mat turnips and frosty bursine clover that's the ballpark um that's last year i mean making a couple changes um, to it, we will be having chicory uh, in it this fall. I'd use that in the past, and I, I don't know why I, I had not had it in there last year. So there's going to be a couple little changes um, to it this year, but uh, in general, that's the mix. We really keep our grains, you know, relative to everything else in the mix. We we don't overdo the grains, and we don't over we don't recommend just continually overseeding with grains after it's planted either. The only time we do recommend that, John, is if the, you know, I have, I have one field, I did a video on it last year, but it's like a 10th of an acre. You know, it's just this little itty bitty field and it's on this ridge top and then it actually drops down into a larger field. But because of access and things that you can get on and off the road, it's, it's quite a, a good little hunting field um, with the right wind. And I love planting it, but it's a 10th of an acre. So like the deer, you know, I run the, because I have the, the drill on the tractor anyways, I, I drill through there and it's, it's great. But normally I go back like three weeks later and that field's eight down pretty good. So I will overseed a little bit on that particular field. On my larger fields, if I get there and I see all the varieties going and I look inside the exclusion fence and of course I can tell there's some browse pressure, but not enough for me to be concerned. I don't go in, in I trust the process and I trust the, the plants to do what they're going to do. And I let them, you know, I, I let them grow. I, I think that's one of the keys is we don't have to just keep throwing rye, you know, rye to it, for example, or oats or whatever, um, just to fill in the gap. Let the plants do their thing. Let those brassicas have that room that they're going to need, you know. And so hopefully we take the guesswork out of that for, for the grower. I have two questions for you, Al. The first question Please. is in the, the grain side of things, based on that blend, would you say your percentage of grain would be based on the, the seed blend there, approximately? Yeah, yeah. You're you're going to only be between probably fifty to fifty five percent. Okay. Um, I don't want to go higher than that. Okay. Um, okay. You know, and we're keeping it by the way that we, we recommend on that at, at forty five pounds to the acre. Obviously, if you're broadcasting, you can go a little bit higher. You know, you can you can get up there to sixty, um, but we we don't go go higher than that. Um, which, which I think is really important because it would be really easy for me to make my, my blend 70% oats or 80% oats or 85% oats and a little bit of, of, you know, peas or something else that's, that's a relatively inexpensive crop and then just have, you know, 1% of everything else or whatever is left. And I, I just, I wouldn't plant that on my own farm, so I'm not going to sell that. 
right? So I, I think that's what's really important to me is like that balance. Um, and I'm very proud of saying that we're, you know, right around 50 to 55% um, grains, uh, you know, compared to some of the other stuff that's on the market. No, I think that's great. And I actually think that's probably more valued by your customer base. They'll see the value in that because those other seeds are likely more expensive for that matter. So yeah. the, the other thing you brought up is quick concept of just kind of plant architecture and think about the profile of the plant. And you talked about, you know, volume of seed, you know, per acre and thinking about, you know, seeds per acre and, and trying to figure out the approximation of that when you're coming up with your own blends. Obviously, this is already established. And thinking about those plants specifically, like I just think of like uh, generally you think about upright plants that I don't know, like a ryegrass, which we just made fun of or, you know, I'm controversial on that topic. But we'll, we'll just say like a wheat is a good example, you know, an annual producer that that, uh, you know, basically has a profile, right? It's upright. What's the spacing it needs to be productive? And you've got something like trefoil, which is another example, you know, that may spread a little bit, right? It has a tendency yep. to kind of spread, you know, that they, they say it kind of prostrates. And then you got, you know, your upright spreading plants, kind of like your brassicas or your cows. And you're just thinking about, you know, above ground, what space that plant takes up as it photosynthesizes and grows. And that, that's kind of critical kind of to your development of how you select these plants and think about how they either synergize, work against each other, the space allocation. The seed blend that you came up with, um, is that like a throw and grow blend? Can I throw it into the you know, the, the plants that were beforehand and either, like you said, flail mower or rotary mower or crimp or whatever, or herbicide, is, is it, does it work in that manner? It sure does. I mean, I would say the hardest plant, and I, you could have guessed this, but I'll say it just for talking purposes, is, is, the, is the peas, excuse me, uh, just because of size, size, if you have any type of turkeys or crows or anything like that, any, any significant population, you know, you, you do risk um, predation, but if you can mow over it or roll or crimp over it, uh, that risk is highly mitigated on those peas. Um, I had one field last year. It was an absolute mess, but I, uh, it was end of my, my free time, right? I had to get home to the wife and baby and I, it was rain, pouring rain. I'm like, well, don't have time to get the bush hog out. Um, obviously herbicide is not an option. It's pouring right out. What do I have to do? Last field I had left to plant that day. And uh, and my buddy was actually drilling in another field, which we just planned to kind of drill and drive off. Um, we, we weren't even mowing or anything. We just drilled right through the nitro boost and, and went home. Um, so he's on the tractor. So I'm like, what am I going to – I got one acre left or something like that to, to do. So I just took a bag spreader and probably went like – a 20% increase on the the rate of the, the carbon load. Yep. And I just broadcast right into the standing nitro boost. Now at that time, um, there were still soybeans in there and things. It was a mess of food, but I tell you what, I mean, I had, I got a picture tonight on my cell camera that's there cause I run them all year cause I'm a nut, but I, I had three or four deer in there eating. Now the rye grain still, still growing um, in there. And I mean, it grew phenomenally. Um, it was a mess, you know, you had sorghum stalks dead and stuff growing all over, but it grew absolutely phenomenally. So it does work very, very well. Um, and obviously as you can mow or crimp or if you want to spray, whatever the grower wants to do, those are all going to help your odds, um, you know, to, to further get that established if you are going to just do the broadcast method. Yeah, really cool. And a nice story there. It's interesting, the timing of rain and thinking about, you know, the moisture levels on your soil, you know, before you just, you know, spread seed on the ground, that's another consideration. Um, you know, maybe you're looking at soil temperature as much as you are the moisture, you know, get a probe out. So think about these things a little more involvedly. So, all right. Um, I think that was a quite a bit of information and good examples, Al. And I think we've been on this a bit. I want to ask you kind of a final question. So you've got clients obviously purchasing your seed and, and they can contact, you know, your business and, and send it out. But if you were Joe Blow and you were going to go to the store, your local ag store, and you're going to build a seed blend for the spring and you, you weren't interested in buying seed from somebody else, you're trying to figure this out yourself. What would be the most simple strategy? You're, you're, again, we talked about diagnosing the soil and, you know, all the strategy, you know, along those lines. 
But what would be a seed blend that you would think would be productive for most folks out there? Because people want a simple answer. Oh, that's a great question. Um, I would say try to include multiple different plant groups, right? So get a legume, get get a grass species or grain species, um, you know, be it a, a, high, a, a sorghum or, or a, an oat, a spring oat or spring barley or something, you know, try to get one of those. I'm somebody who still likes, like we use rape in our mix. I think it's okay to use a brassica. A lot of people might say, well, it's going to bolt in the spring. Again, you're still going to get benefits from the root structure. Um, and, uh, oh, and then a broadleaf, right? So, uh, you know, that, that would be where I would start. Um, the next thing is, you know, as you're, as you're looking at these things and, and considering whether, whether you're making it on your own or, or using a mix like ours, I tell people, I'd rather have you in the first year go a lot lighter on your seed because it's tough, right? Like you don't, it's your first time, maybe first time using a bag spur, maybe first time on this particular field. Um, in 90% of situations, you're better to go lighter on seed than it is to go too heavy. Um, because if you go too heavy, then you start to go, Hmm, I noticed these, these plants look purple, or I noticed these plants don't look healthy. And then you're questioning, is it a soil issue? Is it a, you know, is it a nematode issue? Is it a, you know, what, or is it simply just plant density issue? Right. So I think it's much better to go lighter. So I'd say, um, if if you go to your co-op or your local, local seed dealer, you know, don't put down an acre of rye and an acre of turnips and an acre of a radish all on all on that that one field, right? You have to understand, okay, what do you want to dominate as far as you know your mix goes, and then try to calculate, uh, you know, thereafter, you know, okay, well, how many pounds do I do I need? Um, and, and a lot of places aren't going to sell you a small quantity, so you're going to have to buy a larger quantity, uh, which is okay, you know, in some cases. But then you have to keep in mind like storage and stuff of that. Like, don't let it just sit on the cold floor of your garage or maybe water and stuff gets in there. Like, you know, try to store it in a cool, dry place, you know? So, so those are things that I would keep in mind, but definitely try to, and, and I guess the last thing I'd say, cause I could ramble on this one for a while and I, I don't want to, but it is try to align your goals too. Like if you're doing something in the spring, well, what are your goals? Do you want to feed deer? Do you want to feed you know, do you just want something to grow there for your next crop? Are you just, you know, what, what are your, your grows goals there? You know, is it, is it solely soil focused? And then of course that can help you pick some of your, your species as well. But I think if you try to get at least one plant species from each group that we talked about there, and then don't overdo the seeding rate and, you know, play around with some different mixes, it's going to take you a few years. You're going to want to play around with different rates and things until you kind of fine tune it for yourself. But um, it absolutely can be done. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, just like I, a quick analogy I'll give you. I talked to somebody today, and I said, there's a good chance I could figure out how to make a good birthday cake, you know. But then every time it's somebody's birthday, it's probably going to take a, taste a little bit different, and I'm going to be trying to fine-tune it. And after a while, it's just it's more convenient for me to just go to a local grocery store and buy a birthday cake for Dad's birthday, you know, because it's consistent and it's the same thing every time. It's kind of the same idea with a lot of times when you're buying seed. You know, if you want to buy it, if you're going to do it yourself, be okay that it's it's just like cooking. There's going to be slight variations or variability every time you make that favorite dish of yours. It's going to be the same idea. So be okay with that little bit of variability. Yeah, I think that's good to end on that because I think the style that we talked about, your example earlier with the rain, you know, thinking about these varieties, they're going to look different on an annual basis. You know, we're feeding the bi- biology, right? These plants that are living and dying are feeding the biology. That's the most critical part of it. That's the it ends up being the food source for a lot of the invertebrates and vertebrates and invertebrates for that matter. So, considering that and uh, thinking about the benefit, you know, these bi- biotic aspects that we're kind of developing are really important on the landscape. Um, I'm going to throw out my 60-day mix. I've done this on multiple podcasts. This is what I typically plant or I recommend to a lot of clients. It's really simple. It's got a grass, spring oats, love spring oats. You know, um, you think about the maturity rate of that plant. Uh, legume, forage pea. Uh, and you get a combination of uh, OP combo. I, I like to kind of balance and, and use, you know, a certain variety and, and a certain volume. And then a broadleaf like a buckwheat. 
and thinking about those kind of in a blend. Typically, if I'm just broadcasting and I'm using herbicide to kind of burn down, I'm going to do about 30 pounds of oats, 15 pounds of forage peas, and about 25 pounds of buckwheat. So that kind of gives you kind of a rough example of what I what I do. You know, write that down. You could add some red clover into there because we've talked about the importance of clover in an example like that. Um, I like those forage peas. And I gave you an example of what I'm doing this season you know, on my soil, and I'm getting back into those annual cycles. I talked about my five-year term, how I rotate, how I add amendments. So it gives you some examples there and things to consider. You know, play around with the varieties. Think about the ADF aspect of it, the NDF aspect I talked about earlier. And then, uh, you know, think more specifically about your goals, like Al had kind of commented on. And and think about what we're trying to feed. If we're going to try to create cover, there's another reason how we're going to create spacing on the turkey uh habitat one that we did recently we talked about brooding cover and thinking about having some maybe naturalized areas you know across the landscape where you you do have some you know poke weed as an example you're thinking about you know goldenrod you're thinking about some of those plants that create a form of cover and food right insect you know areas uh facilia flax we're thinking about you know some of those plants that are staples that could be you know kind of highly valued even in these food plot settings um, and they could be perennials as well, kind of that example I gave earlier, you know, where I learned, oh, goodness, I need to have perennials in my in my annual food plot. And again, that was a new eureka moment for me. So, all right, Al, I gave my last little point to everybody summarize. Anything else from your end? Only thing I will say is, one, again, thanks for having me on. Two is I almost don't like to talk on podcasts too much about my own seed company because I, I just like helping people. And I always tell guys, even if you're, you're, if you want to do something on your own or you just want to have, you have a question about a soil test and stuff, you know, I started this company not because I, I needed to start a seed company because I'm passionate about it and I like working with people and I like talking to growers, be it a, somebody who's growing a flower, growing cover crops for a flower farm or a guy who's trying to shoot the biggest buck of his life or, or whatever, it, you know, everything in between. So you have a question, whether you're a customer now or you might be in the future or you're not, shoot me an email. You know, you have a question on a soil test. I'm happy to look over it with you. Happy to give you my two cents because I just, I just really enjoy doing that. And uh, I appreciate your time, John, and everybody who listened. Yeah, no, thank you. I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to promote your product. I think it's a great thing. And, uh, and I think that people should think differently and that that's the whole intention behind this. So I appreciate you, Al. appreciate your product and you know, go follow Vitalize Seed on Facebook, you know, you know, buy their product, give it a shot, see what you think, and start thinking differently about your food plots. All right, man, we'll talk soon. Thanks, Al. Thanks, Sean. See ya. Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out whitetaillandscapes.com.